The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. Good morning, everybody. Like Ella said, we'll be in Acts chapter 28, verses 1 to 16. If you have one of the Bibles that's laid out around the room, that starts on page 1124. Once safely on shore, we found out the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer. For though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and, after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day the south wind came up, and on the following day we reached Pitioli. There we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to speak a week, spend a week with them, and so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the Three Taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. God bless the reading of his word. One of the things through the Lent season, which is um, from Ash Wednesday, which we celebrated on March the 6th, which, we, which is really a time for us to face down two realities, which is, is that we're sinners and we're going to die. And a lot of people have a lot of fear around sin and have a lot of fear and anxiety around death. And, and, and when, it, when it shows itself at times, it's never, it never seems to be convenient or the right time. And so we believe in our faith in Christ that, that Jesus meets sin head on and Jesus met death head on. Now, the rest of our teaching today is really not going to be geared for those of you that have yet to believe in Jesus Christ. And so you're not going to find in the teaching today that we're going to be trying to lay out a case for you or for why you should believe. But yet I'm hoping that as we talk to those of us in the room that do believe, that you would in sense be drawn in to say, wow, look at the way they're taking this Jesus so seriously. And their discussions around Jesus are authentic and they're true. And there seems to be something about it that is just drawing me in. We are in a series which is kind of fin finishing next week, which I can't believe we've been in Acts for over a year and finally coming to an end next week. Um, but we're preparing for Easter at the same time. 
So we're going to finish Acts 28, then we're going to have a Sunday where Mitsumi's dad's coming in from Tokyo, Japan, to share with us about the work that he's doing in Tokyo, as well as ways to encourage us in our faith. Looking forward to that. And then leading up to Easter, we're going to spend a couple of weeks on what, it re- what does the Bible really say about spiritual friendship? Because I'm hoping that through the ending of Acts, in these chapters 27 and 28, Mitsumi's dad's encouragement of us, and then us focusing on true friendship, the way Jesus described it, that by Easter you and I will overcome our fears for inviting people to come to see Jesus alive and resurrected out of an empty tomb. And so there is logic and reason for what we're building upon each Sunday between now and Easter, because when we get to Easter, we're going to be extending an invitation for people to truly understand that the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive, and that has a lot to do with us overcoming our fears of sin and death. And so hopefully we can continue to move forward. And so the Lent packet that I recommended you go online and look up was from the Repentance Project. And this was the prayer this past week. I want to read it to you. Every morning, the prayer was the same. It said this, Lord Jesus, I draw near to you today through the noise of the crowd and through the tyranny of my task list. I press in to touch the hem of your garment. By the power of your Holy Spirit, transform me. Renew my mind with your truth. Open my eyes to see where I'm still bound in my thinking and actions. And come set me free. I want to walk in alignment with you. Make me attentive to the leading of your spirit in my every step today. Guys, I just really just felt like that. Man, that, that is an incredibly powerful, centering prayer. Because what we're facing each day is the noises that are coming after us. And if I could just say, there are a multiplicity of noises. I'm not just talking about St. Patrick's Day parties yesterday got out of control and that we're loud on the streets around some of our homes. I am talking about the noise of life, the noise of your friends, the families, the details, the agendas. Some of you had exciting things happen this week. You got your match envelopes and you're ready to go on to the next phase of the persecution it takes to become a doctor. Um, and all the things that you're going through in order to continue to practice medicine, which people in our world need you to do that. And then others of us that are still dealing with the loss of people that we love and we care for, and we're trying to make sense of it all as well as go to work and make paychecks and pay rent and take care of people around us. There's so much that's happening that we need to have ways that we center ourselves and we remind ourselves Last week, I shared in in Acts 27 that that was most likely at least the fourth shipwreck that Paul experienced. And I know, it's like, if I was Paul, I would stop getting on boats, although this one in particular he had to get on because he was chained to a centurion, so wherever he went, he went. So, um, but I'm just like, Paul, you know, you might want to switch over to horse and buggy, you know, or something, but yet... In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul, in telling the church there about what he had faced, he even found himself one time in a shipwreck, adrift all night, clinging on to a piece of the ship, and then all day the next day. So it's possible he could have been floating in the open water for a full day. And I can't begin to imagine the mental stress that that would have been, let alone the cold, the feelings, the, 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 the hysteria, thinking of the predators from the deep. And We tried to get into a little bit of the Jewish mindset of that last week. But if there's one thing that was a symbol of evil, more so than the water, what was it? 
is in this passage of Scripture today. Say it loudly and proudly. A snake, right? Okay, and so everybody on the count of three? I didn't say three. All right, so I got you now. You guys, you're already listening. You're engaged more than you've ever been, all right? And so uh, it's a snake. And one of the things that all, all throughout Scripture, you know, if the sea is the classic symbol of evil, the snake is, 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 if anything, even more so. And I put it this way because I want you guys to understand that if I was Paul and that snake latched a hold of my hand, my immediate response would have been, really? Really? Like the 14-day hurricane being thrown out of the ship, people wanting to kill me on the boat, now viper. And now everybody's staring at me, waiting for me to die, right? I mean, could you imagine what... But here's the thing. I think Paul was just going around his regular business. I think he literally shook it off, and then whatever Paul was doing, Paul just went back to doing it. Because the people were acting like they were just staring at him, like, all right, when's he going to start showing signs in the effect? Like, you know, is he going to start quivering and falling over? But they're like, wait a minute, he's doing everything. And then what was their assumption? That he was a god, right? And so they go from, man, he's, good. He, he's look, the god justice thought that he should have died on the shipwreck, but he didn't. And so the god of justice is tracking him down. So since the viper, you know, I mean, that's their logic, right? So often in our lives, we think, well, the person is going to get what they have coming. And so no matter what happens, it's going to end up coming. And let me just pause there just for a minute, and let me just say this. Because of Jesus, we don't get what's coming. Because of Christ, we don't get what we deserve. Like There is a God of justice that has laced it with mercy and has made a way for even the most wicked of people, like Paul, who even said to the early church, I'm the chief of all sinners. Like, I've actually killed people or ordered the death of and have beaten and flogged many a person. Like, my hands are not clean of, of blood, but yet Christ. And so Paul, going through all of this and now embracing one of the strongest symbols that has started religions. Like, you can actually go to Baptist churches in Kentucky that actually bring out vipers during church, all because of the way the end of the Gospel of Mark is written, they now have their own Baptist denomination of snake handling. And they believe that if you are right with God like Paul, if you get bitten, you will live. That has never happened in any of their worship services, but they still hold to that, right? And so when you begin to see how much snakes were, everything from the serpent being lifted up in the wilderness and how there's been so many moments where people have drawn into Moses' example of the serpent on the, on the reeds so that people that were being bitten could be healed, to false religions and people using all types of things. Serpents have had a huge impact. And on this particular island, they obviously had some sort of belief in and around this. But the thing that I love about Luke's writing style, let me just stop talking about the content of the letter and actually start talking about how he wrote the letter compared to his other letter, which bears his name, the Gospel of Luke. Luke is a beautiful narrative story of how Jesus lived his life, and then the climax comes in the last week as Jesus stands and teaches in the temple, is brutally crucified, and then is resurrected. And there's this moment on Easter Sunday morning when the tomb is empty in Luke's Gospel where it's like as if the disciples just can't figure out what's going on. Like, 
Jesus had told them the tomb was going to be empty, but when the tomb was empty, they didn't realize that it was going to be empty. And they just had no mental preparation. They had never prepared themselves for this moment. And there's a sense of that now in Paul's writing here in the book of Acts. Excuse me, Luke's writings about Paul here in the book of Acts. Like as if they've come to this climax about the fact that the angel had appeared to him in chapter 27. And you're going to stand before Caesar. And then all these things are going to start happening. And now you begin to see the early church interacting with Paul like as if something special has happened, but they're just totally unaware of what that special thing really is. And the thing that's so special, and I put it on a slide for you, the gospel, like the risen Jesus, is alive and active and is now reaching out to the ends of the earth. This particular chapter, the way Luke is ending his letter to Theophilus about what he had witnessed and experienced as the early church was moving from Jew to Gentile and, in, and teaching how the Jews were finding the Messiah in Jesus Christ and in the invitation to Gentiles that had many gods to believe in the one true God. Paul has been on this journey communicating all of that. And in Luke's writing style, he's now getting to a place where all of that is coming to ahead. But there's I feel like this particular story has incredible shocking features, but is also incredibly funny. And again, and part of the humor of it is the fact that there was a snake involved after he'd been on a ship, and people are watching him, and they're now calling him a god, and then, it didn't, then Luke just moves on. And then I'm like, okay, Luke, is there any resolve, anything else? But no, it just goes right along. And then Paul ends up living in the, in the head island governor's house because he was chained to the centurion, and the centurion wasn't going to live in a tent by the river or down by the water. He was going to live in the best place he possibly could. So Paul, because he's chained to the centurion, gets to speak to the highest-ranking official for months weathering the winter. And so he's sharing his story as the centurion is like, I'm not going to let you out of my sight because my life depends upon you getting to Caesar. And then him protecting him but saying, you know what, I'm going to live in the best place possible. And so, Paul, you've got to come with me. And so now Paul, who has been in a pit of a prison for how many years? Two years. And just survived a 14-day hurricane and just was bitten by a snake, is now living, and now he's doing exactly what Paul had always wanted to do. And that's why I entitled this particular teaching, Finally, Paul Gets to Do What Paul Felt Like Paul Was Supposed to Do. That is the longest title of any teaching I've ever given. But could you imagine how excited Paul was, even though he was still attached to a centurion? He was teaching people on an island that were Gentiles about Jesus Christ. He had a chance to be in the home with a man who was sick, who got healed. And because he got healed, word spread across the island and everybody started bringing their sick and they got healed. And now Paul is probably enjoying every single day that he wakes up. But yet... Paul seemed to be enjoying every single day he was in prison. I can't figure that out. I mean, how could Paul, in the last two chapters, be abounding in joy but held in an incredible amount of, of, of confinement and being restricted to the point where he was only getting fed if people in the, in the, in, that were connected with him brought him food, now he finally gets freedom miraculously from a shipwreck, shakes a viper off his hand, and now is getting a chance to preach every day and teach every day about Jesus and healing people, and they're getting healed. I mean, imagine just the magnitude of experiences, but it, through the one thing that's consistent through it all was his faith in Jesus Christ. 
I was just taken back by all of this. But the thing that I love, too, about this shocking story was that Paul was now introducing to this island that already believed in a God of justice who the real God of justice was. And if this is not timely for us in our country, in the discussions, and you flip on your news networks and you get your news feeds online and the things that are coming to you, let me just tell you, in Jesus Christ, we serve the God of justice. And that God is going to make everything right. And he wants to use us to be a part of that. And Paul knew so confidently that his part, his responsibility of serving the God of justice was to communicate who the one true God was to people that were non-Jewish. That's how laser-focused he was. And in a room like this, probably 90 to 100 of us sitting in here right now, I just want to tell you this. I believe God has something for each of you. Some of you might get to speak to tens of thousands of people and might travel the world. Others of you, you are going to be responsible, as Leon shared with us a few weeks ago, to minister to the one kid on the street corner that's selling drugs. You're going to know it in your spirit. You're going to wake up at night in the middle of the night thinking about this young man or this young woman. You're going to wake up in the morning and you're going to be thinking about them. You're not only going to be burdened by the fact that this kid's on the street corner, you are going to feel it in your spirit that God wants you to strike up a conversation. And then the day that you do and the day that you see that through is the day that you're going to feel like, oh my goodness, did I just fulfill the purpose that God has for me? And what an incredible way to then go to bed is to know that you've done what God wanted you to do. What kind of peaceful night's sleep could that be? What kind of rest could we then have in Christ? Luke, through Paul's story here, is introducing this. And I love this. And this is a rhythm for us. Remember, we are Advent people, which means we live between what times? Between what? The resurrection and ascension, and then what? The second coming, like when Jesus comes back. So we live in between people. And so part of the story of Paul and the other characters in the book of Acts that I, I, I want to almost become repetitious in our conversation so that we can then begin not to be surprised by it, but there is a pattern of accusation and then vindication that has been over and over again in Paul's life where he's been accused of things, where he's faced down storms, where he's faced down vipers, shipwrecks, but then he's had people say false things about him, and he's continued to endure those on and on and on, but every time he's endured it, there's been a vindication moment. Sometimes that vindication has taken years, sometimes 14 days, sometimes just a flick of the wrist to get something off of him. And there's been no consistency to the time frame. There's been no consistency that it's always like this. There's been times where he announced Jesus in Acts 14 or Acts 13. And they were like, wow, look at this. People are being healed. He must be a God. And he corrected them. And they immediately started throwing rocks at him. I'm just sitting here thinking, man, I would not want to have a church of his type of people where I tell you about Jesus, and you're like, wow, Ellis, that's great. And I'm like, it's not about the words being great, it's about Jesus. And you start throwing stuff at me. I mean, that's what Paul was experiencing. But let me just say this to all of us in here today. At some level, I know that you've got to sense that it's true in your faith. 
But when you give Jesus every day of your life, you are going to get falsely accused by somebody of something. And you will exhaust yourself if you continue to try to defend yourself. But I love what Paul did. He continued to just live it consistently and allowed the righteous judge to be his vindication. He stood before governors. He stood before kings. He stood before people that hated him and people that loved him. And then in this little makeshift bonfire, he faced down a serpent. I believe that Paul on this island was starting to feel at home. I do think there's a little bit of irony. I did a little research on Malta, current, present day. And if you go and you look, they boast that there are no more snakes on the island. (laughs) I think it's hilarious. It is that way in a lot of places where they used to have snakes and then they became inhabited and people's animals and dogs, you know, destroy the population and there's no longer snakes any longer. um, But they also now have a bay of St. Paul. So this history has shaped their culture, and there are now numerous churches that bear Paul's name. There's numerous retellings of this one story that has become incredibly infiltrated into the fabric of of their life. And then one of the things that goes so unnoticed in a passage like this, because we just read over it really quickly, is the way that they honored Paul in leaving. This word actually can be translated like where we get the word honorarium from, So most likely there was a financial gift. And some of it may have been financial because of the healing. Like they may have felt like they had to pay him something because their relatives were now all well. Others of them may have just been giving because Paul had talked to them about the movement of Jesus Christ and that he was heading to Rome. And they wanted to make sure that he and all of his traveling companions had what they needed. It doesn't really give clarity to this. But the one thing that it does do is that Paul was extremely liked. Can we we just let that sink in just for a few moments? Paul just spent the winter, the hardest time of the year to live on a nice island in the cold and in whatever type of winter expression they would have had there. But at the end of it, when it came time to send Paul away, they were showing how much they loved him by the gifts that they were giving to him. Paul was a man to be trusted and valued. The story of his life doesn't seem to show a life of a man that was exceptionally blessed. I mean, there were great moments. Like, I would love to have a a winter season here in Baltimore with everybody I ever taught believed in Jesus and everybody that I ever came encountered with that was sick was made well. But would I be willing to be in prison for two years? Would I be willing to go through a 14-day hurricane wondering if people around me were going to live or to die? We like the good parts of Paul's life, but do we really take the bad parts of Paul's life? And do we realize that Paul was faithful on the good and bad days, so much so that after people got to know him, they were like, wow, he was worthy of trust. What an incredibly valuable individual. What do people say about us? Like, do they say about you and I, or obviously as a pastor, and we came out in the Covenant family discussion around our church finances, is that there have been so many people that have abused my role in responsibilities with finances that have laid burdens on people, especially in the area of money. I've allowed our church pendulum to swing so far away from it, we go most Sundays and don't even announce that we take up an offering. 
We don't even let people know that there's ways that they can give because I wanted to respond to the pastors like, oh, we're going to pass the plate again. I feel like somebody's holding out, right? And some of you have been a part of churches like that, or that might be your home church and the experience that you've had. And people stop going to church because of issues of money. And I am saying all that because I want to be somebody that's valued and trusted. And I've realized that pastors that associate themselves with money very quickly lose trust and lose value. But I also want to be the type of person where I can go through what seems like the valley, the shadow of death, or on the top of the mountain, and my character doesn't change. That my hope doesn't change. That the type of the way that I teach about Jesus doesn't change. And so that when you as an audience are seeing me, that you're like, you know what, when I go through the valley, my faith doesn't change. When I'm on the top of the mountain, my faith doesn't need to change. And the people that are watching you are like, wow, when you are going through the valley, your faith doesn't change. When you're on the mountaintop, your faith doesn't change. And before long, we have a movement across the city where people are like, man, the people that believe in Jesus have valuable character. The people that believe in Jesus are worthy of trust. The people that believe in Jesus talk about Jesus with great hope when they've been in a 14-day hurricane and they've been bitten by snakes, when they've been persecuted and accused falsely. They maintain their faith and their hope, and they're the type of person that once you get to know them, they are valued, and I, I want to support them with my life. So much about Paul has been around the gospel which he's bringing is flourishing, and nobody can stop it. And Paul wasn't a hindrance for it. Paul was not getting in the way of the good news he was talking about because he lacked character or that his faith wavered. He was constant. And because of that constance in his life, he was able to keep moving forward and the gospel was exploding and there was power associated with it. Everything that he had done in his life was now preparing him for the moments we're going to talk about next week. I want you guys to understand this, because I think this is the part, especially in our Western education, that we have lost sight of versus other cultures that, that view life and work and family differently. The challenge for us is, is that we want everything our parents have in our 20s. Like, we don't view the fact that they got some hand-me-downs from their parents, you know, like the sofa that just will never get out of the family. Um, and the things that, they, that their first apartment was stacked up with, and then the jobs that they worked, and the ways they provided for family, and then you see your parents in retirement years, and you're like, man, I wish I had everything they do, and you want it when you're 24, and you haven't worked 40 years of your life to possess the things that they have. So there's just so many. That's just one of the examples of ways that in our generation, we don't appreciate time and marinating, so to speak. We want everything fast. Take me to the freezer so I can throw it in the microwave and somebody else marinate it, figure out how to freeze it so I can nuke it in a minute and have a good meal. Now, others of you, that just totally disgusted you because you appreciate the finer aspects of cooking. And you don't mind spending four or five hours on a meal that you'll consume in 12 minutes, right? (laughs) You don't mind that because you're like, the food is worth it. My taste buds are worth it. Your life is worth it. Do you know how many years it took Paul to get to Rome? Over 20. It took him over 20 years to do the thing that God told him that he was going to do. 20 years. And where is the long-suffering, the perseverance in us? How long would we keep laboring and hold our character 
and our value in other people's eyes? I don't know if we, if that's, I think that could be a struggle for our generation. Because we're so used to everything coming to us so quickly that we don't know what it, it looks like to lay a foundation and to build something beautiful and then see the nice windows go in and be able to stand back and watch people come into it. That's one thing I loved when I had a chance to um, spend two weeks in Egypt. I was looking at structures that sometimes took 100 years or more to build because of the technology of their era. Like now they'll build a, like the Light Street Tower in less than 12 months, and people are moving into it with joy and at great expense. I'm like, you might want to wait a few years to see if that's well constructed. I mean, we can throw things up just miraculously quick nowadays and sell it for high prices, but then you look at the pyramids and you look at the Sphinx and you look at other things around the world that took decades, if not years upon years, to build. And imagine the person that laid the first stone never saw it complete. We lost the value of that in our faith. That, that there's things that we're laying a foundation for for future believers that we'll never see fully in our life, and it is okay. There's a labor to what we're doing, and I love that, that Luke is telling this story of Paul, and I love how this particular reading ends. And let me just share this with you about it. There are already Christians in Rome. So let me get this straight. God is telling Paul to get to Rome to announce the good news of Jesus Christ, but there are already believers there. So Paul is not going somewhere as the tip of the spear so to speak. Like he's not the first one to get in. And he's already written a letter to them that bears the name Romans. And if we look at it, Romans chapter 11 is all about him explaining to the church in Rome that yes, I am a Jew, but I believe in Jesus. And let me tell you, despite anything, God has had a blessing on the Jewish family that was revealed in Jesus Christ, but now with Gentiles included, it's even better. Read Romans chapter 11 and see how he talks about that. And then when he gets there, he, he walks up three cities away and people from Rome are already traveling to greet him because they have read the letter that he sent, him, sent them. And they're treating him like an emperor returning from a victorious battle. They're coming miles upon miles away. They're greeting him to walk him to Rome. Now imagine the centurion, like they finally make landfall after this epic journey, this wintering hibernation, get back in a boat, they sail their way. And it says for seven days, Paul was welcomed into the home of Christians in that community, which meant that the entire team traveling within the centurion, what was going on in the centurion's head? Like I'm bringing a prisoner from Jerusalem to stand before Caesar. And now these people are greeting him with pomp and circumstance welcoming into his home, the, the centurion stayed because he was being well-fed and was being highly cared for. Let me just tell you this. He didn't go in like chained to Paul, like Paul's just like dragging him around. No, he was the one dragging Paul around until he was greeted with such family intimacy and love that he stayed for a week after he had been chained to Paul in Jerusalem months earlier. You figure like he'd want to be done with this fool. But he stays because he is baptized into the family of God. He's been immersed into what it looks like for people that are holding on to their faith through all the different life circumstances, and he has become more, I, I feel, more and more overwhelmed 
by the way that the community cared for and loved people because he thought he was bringing somebody that was convicted of a crime and he's being greeted like an emperor. Imagine what was going on in their heads. They had read his letter and they had been waiting for him and they were ready to welcome him. Romans 11.1, I asked then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. And so next week we're going to pick up from there. But the thing that I feel like is the best way for us to pause this so that we can begin to see how Paul talks now to the people in Rome would be for me to ask this. Whether in prison or in freedom, Paul spoke with equal confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. So with you, on good days or bad days, do you speak with the same confidence of the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, if there's anything that you and I as a follower of Jesus can take out of the last three chapters in the book of Acts is that on good days and bad days, Paul was faithful to Jesus Christ. So on your good days, are you faithful to Jesus Christ? And on your bad days, are you faithful to Jesus Christ? Because let me tell you this, you live long enough, you're going to have both. And sometimes you have them seconds apart. Sometimes you have them weeks apart. Sometimes we have long seasons of both. And some of you are like, man, I'm 40 years old, and it seems like it has only been bad. And there's others of you, man, that's been 50 years, and it's only been good. But have you been faithful to Jesus Christ so much so that people are drawn to you because of your character and the ways that you talk and the ways that you love and you treat people? And if, you were, if somebody was chained to you, would they want to be let go? Or would they want to stay with you with your family and friends for a whole extra week? And there's so many powerful ways to draw ourselves into this story. But I really do feel like God's looking for his church to have great character. God is looking for his church to be trustworthy, for the people that claim the name of Jesus to be trustworthy. And I want us from my life and my family to yours and your family to be a place where people are like, you know what, I might not agree with them on what they believe about Jesus, but I'll tell you what, that person is trustworthy. Let's pray.